Welcome to episode 20 of the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is your host, Victor Bonacci. And we'd like to make an announcement about the upcoming Agile Coach Camp in Irvine to be held this April. The facilitator will be none other than yours truly, Victor Bonacci. That's right, I will be facilitating the circle there, opening it and closing it. So I've got a little bit of uh, reading to do on my Taoist uh, emptiness principles. <laughs> For more information on the Coach Camp, uh, to see who's coming and uh, check out who the sponsors are, visit the website at agilegathering.com. Now sit back, relax, and get ready for another fine brew of some Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee. Welcome back to another morning of coffee and conversation. This is Agile Coffee, episode 20, L'Episode 20. I don't know. It's the best I could do, guys. Sounds right. Thank you. Um, as as per normal, I've got my good friends Dale and John here today. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Good morning. Dale Ellis is on Twitter, at the Digital Dale, and John Jorgensen can be reached at Water Scrum Bond. My name is Victor Bonacci. And here we are. Let's get things going. So um, before we head off into our topic land, a few uh, interesting notes that we wanted to bring up. One is we wanted to thank people for going out to iTunes and Stitcher and leaving us all those stars and wonderful reviews. For good or for bad, we'd love to hear what you have to say about the programming. So um, please spend a minute and just uh, visit your download source of choice and uh, and click a, a review for us, please. It helps us out a lot. As well, I uh, just want to remind people that AgileGathering.com is the website to find out more information about Agile Coach Camp US West, which is uh, April 10th through 12th of this year. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. We've got, um, we've got Sue Johnston doing a, a little pre-program, optional, it's, uh, in the days leading up, as well as James uh, Pietro doing a nonviolent communications class. And we're also happy to say that uh, we've got... Um, the Bonifer Bonfire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Mike Bonifer of Game Changers uh, is going to be participating in this event um, in some capacity. We've yet to know the details. We're looking forward to that, though. His folks are the improvisational wizards of the West Coast, in air quotes. And this is going to be something fun for anyone and everyone who loves to laugh. Should we get right into the conversation cards that we have in front of us? Absolutely. So following lean coffee principles, we write uh, one topic of conversation onto a 3x5 index card in this case. And we've got a, a summary of uh, eight or nine of them in front of us here. We're just going to read them all off. Now, as you may know, we um, we tend to have more cards than we actually put in an episode. So sometimes people have asked, do you cover everything that you, you write? And I say... Well, maybe at a coffee we would, but uh, certainly for a podcast, um, things do get edited out. So um, with that, we'll go ahead and start on the top right there, offshoring wisdom. So this is a topic, especially in the Agile community, but I suppose in the information technology community that's since I would say probably year 2000 been a very um, controversial topic. I'm curious and just asking asking questions to reexamine the reasons and the 
perceived benefits of offshoring software development or other work, I suppose, uh, to to individuals or teams um, anywhere outside of, let's say, the United States or North America. Sounds good. Dale's got a card up. It says, new meeting methods. Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, different alternative meeting methods from the types that are classically used in most organizations. Uh, There are some kind of prescribed ways or very, very common ways of of conducting uh, certain meetings in in agile environments and particularly Scrum. But what if you're having, what what if you have to do uh, other types of uh, meetings? Uh, What are some of the best ways to to handle them and what are some of the new techniques for that? Wow, good. Uh, Tenure, it says tenure and great teams, quick turnaround. Yeah, so this is a question again about how long is long enough for a team to come together to become hyper-performing? And when an Agile coach is involved, what is the reasonable time frame that an Agile coach should be able to have some sort of influence or impact towards the positive on a team? Um, paired coaching. And approximating truth. John. Yeah, so recently I've been reading a book called Quantum Psychology that talks about the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics as it relates to individual human psychology. And I'm seeing parallels that apply to coaching. In other words, how two coaches could be better than one, especially as we realize that Nobody is absolutely correct in their interpretation of the truth. The the final card here is another of mine. It says pair programming exercises. And I just was driving in and thinking of, um, you know, pair coaching, oddly enough. And then I was um, kind of as the mind wandered through uh, pair programming and, and what types of exercises are out there to have teams and, and pairs kind of get more comfortable with the notion of pairing and, and more good at it and productive at it. So let's go ahead and give, uh, let's take three dots apiece, gentlemen, and we'll go ahead and do our voting. And now that we've got our backlog all sorted out, we will go ahead and pull the first card. Uh, We've got today Offshoring Wisdom. John, this is your card. Yeah, so offshoring has been going on for about 15 years now, and Presumably, it provides value at a lower cost to companies that consume software. So I'd like to, I'd like to examine that to see if, A, we, we are achieving that objective, and B, if we're optimized to achieve that objective. The, the first point about whether software is getting developed offshore or whether it's cost-effective, I, I think, is is dubious. And that's just based on my own personal anecdotal experience with team members that are offshore and generally have been focused on testing more than actually developing code, though I know that there are both um, types of scenarios. The, the reason why I would question whether it's actually profitable is because There are negative externalities that exist when there's both a delay. And when I say offshore, by the way, I'm talking about where the offshore um, 
team member is in a time zone that's like more than eight hours mm. off. Or Significant wherever. time yeah. shifting. Yeah. Right. And so there's there's the cost of delay that happens, and then there's also the the dependency on the team that's not offshore to make special accommodations for the offshore team member, meaning writing up more emails, um, dialing into a phone conference at, say, midnight or sometime around that, that time of night, and then basically becoming either demotivated or, or overworked. And I've never seen any presentation from any individuals in any company show a model that includes those costs and, yeah. and, and demonstrate here's how it actually has benefited our stakeholders monetarily. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to presume that it's not existent just be, because it hasn't been quantified and presented yet, but I do believe that the people who are the most vehement advocates for offshore outsourcing of software development it is incumbent upon them to find data that supports that model, just as Agile is constantly called to task to provide data that supports that an Agile development cycle is actually more cost-effective than a traditional phase-gate approach. So that's I'm curious if anybody in this room has ever seen data that supports the profitability of offshore outsourcing. I, I haven't seen any uh, that supports it. I, I think the, the standard reaction of, of most upper management is that they, they look strictly at what it costs to employ a person per hour mm-hmm. and say it's like, oh, okay, well, it costs one-third to one-quarter uh, on average to employ a person in India, for instance, mm-hmm. than it does here in the United States. So, therefore, uh, it pays for us to have development or QA work done over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they don't look at, though, is the productivity and output of the teams. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's almost never looked at. And uh, I th- there have been some studies on that. I know Jeff Sutherland's organization yeah. Uh, has done some studies on that, and they've found that it is it's actually cheaper for him to produce software in Boston, Massachusetts, than it is to offshore it because hmm. of the productivity gains uh, that are that are realized from using the, the Scrum approach and having a tightly integrated, highly collaborative Scrum team here versus. Uh, a, a team with some other methodology offshore. So there, there has been some some studies done on that. And, and the the interesting thing in my experience personally has been individuals indicating that we need to make special allowances for lack of productivity, lack of motivation, or lack of quality of work mm-hmm. um, or professionalism oh, yeah. because it's an offshore. Uh, outsourced uh, development resource mm. or person. I don't like to call people resources. Um, and it's because they're at a lower rate of pay mm. relative to the United States, which I think, I don't know, that argument might not 
deserve uh, any kind of defense here. Um, I'll set it aside in footnote. If any of our uh, listeners would like to have me um, list the logical fallacies included in that argument, I'd be happy to do on a separate podcast or maybe in some show notes. I implore you. Show notes. Okay, <laughs> we'll do. So then the second question or the second half, which was um, – when when we're doing offshore development, are we getting an actual um, uplift in profitability? So the you know not, not just that it's that it's um, you know something that can save costs, but that it goes better. And interestingly enough, you know even the strongest opponents to outsourcing offshore um, software development have made some suggestions about the right way to approach that. Being well. Rather than having individual team members try to coordinate and do rich communication mm-hmm. with an onshore team, take an entire unit, a, self, a self-adequate or self-sufficient um, team, and give them a backlog, let them burn it down. And then at least you can compare apples to oranges maybe in terms of um, turnaround time on features and quality of work, et Yeah, there you go. I, I wanted to ask what metrics we would use other than, like, labor cost. Uh, mm-hmm. You're mentioning turnaround time. Um, what other metrics go into the equation? I would say output of stories. It's always it, – it, it's, it's story points you really can't measure across teams. But over time, you can – uh, base you can make output measurements uh, based on on output of user stories, uh, so that's that's one of the key things. Um, and uh, delivery of then there's the ultimate thing of delivery of features that produce uh, a profit or benefit to the organization and what the what the financial benefit is. But. I would say also, I mean, the the proof is always in the pudding. The the value is in the software, and if yeah. that's the case. Of course, the user experience is paramount, but beyond that, there's the maintainability of the code itself. In other words, is there mm-hmm. technical debt sure. waiting to be paid down, or is it really ready to be handed over to some other team, or is it something that if you know there was a future enhancement to be requested, that there's no slowdown in the, the future delivery or turnaround on those requests. Good, yeah. I'd think in my portfolio of metrics, quality would be included. And then, as mm-hmm. you said, I don't know how you would measure that um, future enhancement lag or something like that. Yeah, you know, exactly. uh, Reaction to, to changes. Well, the, uh, if uh, I mean, they use adjectives, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the fragility of the code, for mm-hmm. example, or maybe the, the maintainability, the uptime, things like that. And maybe the best judges for that are other software developers. <laughs> All right. Any uh, last thoughts on the topic before we move on? Well, I was just going to reiterate, though. The, there's the obvious costs to people over here of of having and, – and to people over there. It doesn't matter which side of the planet yeah. that you're on. Uh, if you're having to communicate with people that, that are uh, in a time zone mm-hmm. that's more than – four, five, six hours outside of your own, mm-hmm. you've got little to no overlap in your ordinary workday, mm-hmm. which means that, that that people on one side or both sides of, of the world 
are having to work some weird, out-of-the-ordinary mm-hmm. hours, which cut into what most people would consider to be their personal time. Right. Um, in yeah. some cases, severely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's the obvious – and then there's the obvious problems with with, uh, with high bandwidth communication. Mm-hmm. If you have little to no overlap in your workday and all you're really doing is having a, some kind of a, stand, a combined stand-up meeting, uh, then your, uh, your communication has to be – you have to rely far more on documentation, which mm-hmm. is kind of a – counter agile value uh, rather than than collaboration and communication uh, so yeah there, there's the obvious problems uh, yeah. along those lines by the way since we're talking about morale I believe that the morale is the main input into employee turnover in other words attrition attrition and rehiring costs are enormous and attrition or rehiring costs can make or break a software development department. And I think that more than one CTOs or CIOs have had to look for a new place of employment because they haven't been able to keep up with their attrition sufficient to give new software to the business at you know time frames that they would like to have it. So if the very same people that are making these decisions to outsource and offshore their development are the ones that are reaping the rewards or penalties uh, through attrition and you know hiring costs. Then I I guess that there there should be some learning that happens that it shouldn't take say 14 15 years for some sort of equilibrium some sort of sustainable model to establish itself. But unfortunately, I don't see it coming. Offshoring. What are your experiences with offshoring? Uh, let us know by using Twitter. The hashtag is TellAgileCoffee. You can also go to our brand new forums. Well, they're not brand new now. They're getting they're getting used. Um, go to AgileCoffee.com/forums and find the one that says Offshoring. Which brings us right to your next topic, John. Uh, if you want to continue on, the next topic we have on the board is uh, tenure and great teams, quick turnaround. So you're talking about attrition and rehire rates and employee turnover? Yeah. And, you know, as I was driving sometime earlier this week, thinking about hiring employees and looking at resumes and comments that other employees that I've worked with sometime in the past have said, you know, if... If they haven't been at a company longer than duration X, you'd have to wonder why. In other words, basically pointing a finger at someone as the cause of their longevity with a given organization. And I started thinking about that and start, you know, couldn't the question be put the other way, which is what what was going on with an organization that you know, maybe a certain had a certain amount of attrition that's higher than normal or higher than it needs to be, uh, and so I started thinking, well, what are the real costs, and what should we expect as either external consultants or Scrum of Scrum masters or Agile coaches? How long should it take for a team member to? learn the code, learn the business, develop great software, and strike a cadence that's sustainable. And how long should an Agile coach, if let's say they're Mm -hmm. going into a troubled team? Because that's generally, I think, where you would apply the most resources of Agile coaches to. Um, How long does it take to to make a difference? And before I 
start throwing out my guesses because I don't have answers to this. Mm. Um, I'm interested in what you know the visceral response might be from the folks in the room. Yeah, it, it, certainly it all depends. Your mileage may vary. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Um, I could speak to to my own experience. I've got a small sample size, though, and it feels as though when I came on board um, a startup with a with a small set of people, you know, just the just buying into and, and just about to kick off this transformation, um, you know, management ownership was well bought into Agile at that time, and we had people on staff who had done Agile in the past. So I was a a coach coming in with a large net underneath me. Um, and I feel like I was making a difference off the bat in the sense that I was able to use my organizational skills to kind of help that transformation uh, go. I was helping enable it that way. Um, and then as the teams grew, I was able to uh, make a difference in parallel um, along the lines. Now, coming into a, another situation where um, teams had been practicing Agile or Scrum for, um, for a, a while, some period, um, I may have had to kind of take some time to mesh my gears with them as you're like shifting mm-hmm. gears in a transmission or something that mm. the gears have to get in sync before they could start um, providing power to the system. Um, so again, small sample size, but uh, you know, like I say, you should be able to see what changes could be made rather quickly, but then enacting on those changes and having an effect through a political organization uh, may take a, a bit longer. Yeah, I, you know, as, as I look at my own experience, it takes a matter of months to build the rapport with the team while the team is getting comfortable with the idea that they can change for the positive and building a vision for what's possible and then start taking some risks or, you know, some, some, some chances, uh, maybe even failing a couple of times before there's this regalvanization and all of a sudden they're behaving as a different team. Yeah. And so, you know, I I think if you know the if if the vol- if the team membership is so volatile that you don't even have that kind of a time frame, like a matter of say two to three months, um, it could be very difficult, if not impossible, depending on the team. Um, to actually, you know, turn them around. Mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd love to see, um, you know, coaches, presumably external ones, who come in, and in a couple of days or weeks are able to affect extensive change and, you know, reverse a, a direction. I don't know if yeah, it that sounds pretty uh, Herculean. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that that's the case. Uh, well, you consider like any any situation. I'm thinking of like the Schrodinger cat uh, uh-huh. syndrome, which I think yeah. is in that book too. It is, um, yeah. They the idea that the observed team is going to change differently than than the non-observed True. team, and so you're not talking about just merely an observer, but rather a coach yeah. who's expected to make changes. So their behavior, just by having that presence, is going to be affected. Um, and it may go in the unintended direction, the opposite direction. So you've got oh. a little bit more work. Yeah, that's you know, true. The resistance is up. You know, the right. defenses are on. Yeah, that's. Mm. I mean, that's that's the challenge. Depending on the maturity of the team, but it sounds like you're talking about affecting change in from in a, a positive yeah, way, of right. course, and in a substantial way. Because, right. especially, I would say when you're an external resource, which I'm not, but when you're an external consultant slash agile coach. 
um, the the organization is taking on a financial burden that they're expecting to have a payoff. I would expect, I, I would think, would be relatively quick and very pronounced, yeah. measurable at least. So, what's your what's your guess at? Um, you you posed two questions for the coach mm-hmm. was the second part, but the first no, was for the, the team member, right. right? So, honestly, I think with the team member, my experience. I mean, I've, I've been on teams that have. Mm-hmm constant churn and not necessarily you know ex- extreme you know one one day they're here the next day they're not but you know people come and go in this industry and i think that it takes about two or three months again for someone who knows nothing about the domain and has never seen the code base to becoming a substantial contributor to the code base for a new functionality that's that's generally a um, a short to midterm process transformation, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I wonder if people that are not working with the teams on a daily basis have that same frame of mind that when when there is any turnover in the team, you're basically going to need to wait now three months from hire, so probably about five months, including the two months to hire. Right, but but it's so variable. I mean, team members, yeah. some team member could be fully bought into to Scrum or, mm-hmm. or the ideals of Agile before, you know, joining the team. Maybe they're in a different part of the organization. Oh, boy, that's or, true, yes. And they have some, some knowledge already mm-hmm. because they're part in the same department just on another team or something. I would say, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm assuming an optimistic, like it's a yeah. it's an apples for apples swap. So you're okay. taking in somebody that is experienced and uh, on board with an Agile, right. process, uh, Agile framework and that just being human in mm. order to put their mind in the context of the code and the the knowledge domain it's right. going to take about 3 months yeah, yeah. but i i'm i'm so open to other experiences and other other ideas cuz um again you know this is this is my limited um experiential mm. context and by no means is like the last word or absolute truth apples to apples indeed all right, that brings us to the end of the card. Um, once again, reminding you that there are forums on agilecoffee.com slash forums. Uh, we should probably start a forum for something like this. I want to see what are what are the commonalities? What are the mm-hmm. apples out there? What do they look like? Uh, the guys that you're going to swap from one team to another that could fulfill that uh, use case. Use case? can't believe I said use case on a podcast. <laughs> Right. What have we got next? Scenario. <laughs> uh, new meeting. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, it says it says new meeting methods, Dale. Right. Uh, yeah, I've, I've run into this in a couple of organizations. And, uh, when you come in and they're conducting meetings in a way that that's maybe like old fashioned, um, they're not meetings that necessarily. Uh, uh, lend themselves well to some of the, the prescribed or, or very common ways of conducting meetings in Scrum, uh, but you still need to conduct these meetings, uh, things where you're, for instance, maybe uh, uh, reviewing and estimating stories or you're having a management review of, uh, of a number of different projects or things like that. I've just started reading uh, a book uh, called uh, "Let's Stop Meeting Like This," uh, which and, and so they and they go into some of the uh, 
this consultancy and these people who, who authored this book uh, uh, start talking about uh, some of the, the methods that they're using. And, and one of the first things that, that uh, these people talk about is uh, is making all meetings voluntary mm-hmm. uh, and so that nobody has to attend the meeting. And it's like it only, they only attend if they find value uh, nice. in the meeting. If you de- And if you're in the meeting and you stop finding value, that you, you can vote with your feet nice. and you can leave. So open that's space. kind of like a, uh, so like an open <laughs> space kind of a thing. So, uh, I was wondering if, if you guys had any, uh, 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 highly effective, but non-traditional techniques for, for managing meetings. Well, the, I guess the most non-traditional that I've done is an agile coffee for a retrospective. And it was very opportunistic, meaning that we had somehow gotten started late or had something that was going to interrupt, you know, our prescribed hour for a retro. And I thought, well, the, the, the most surefire way of getting more topics covered is to, you know, time box each topic mm-hmm. and, and prioritize it for maximum value. But I think that truthfully that meeting was non-optional. It was considered part of the job of of doing software development as being in that retrospective. And I love the idea that by people having the option to leave, that then they are voting to be in the meeting you know, with their feet by simply being there and the level of engagement that you're going to get, therefore the value is going to be relatively higher than it would have otherwise been, I think. But I, I would think you need to make a clean break to say, like, it's a new world, a new paradigm, and then everybody gets to vote for their with their feet any meeting from now on. That's, that's um, great when it's not just entropy, people just not showing up and silently, you know, giving no reason why or, or you know, getting confused, for example, not knowing about the meeting or something like that. Yeah, quickly, I use lean coffees as well throughout for retrospectives. Um, <clears throat> around road mapping time, uh, we we used a lean coffee to get issues out on the table for road mapping. And it was great because we had people in the engineering and, and uh, DevOps departments here all together. We didn't invite any POs to that one yet, but, but we were just getting issues out there. And rather than having you know each person pontificate for God knows how long on the need for um, – CI or, or data migration or anything, lean coffee. You get you know a minute to go around the room and talk about each card or three minutes or whatever we gave them. But we did vote, and that was uh, that was nice because it kind of showed us where the pain points were across the organization. Um, further, we've you're, John, you're talking about other uh, meetings. I'm trying to think of um, any other method that I've used, and I can't really come up with a surefire method. I'm thinking of your mm-hmm. you know, your laser pointers and your dart guns and your things mm-hmm. that you're throwing at, at gongs and stuff that we talked about in previous casts, but mm-hmm. but I'm thinking about places. And um, when I think about like moving it to a restaurant, which we've mm-hmm. done, mm-hmm. or moving it outdoors, which we've done, but now you're kind of talking about team building and things are, lines mm-hmm. are getting blurred between what's the objective of the meeting and, and is there this team building aspect, um, to which uh, I'd say even the rules that you're talking about voting with your feet wouldn't always work in all circumstances, like when we are on the boat, you know, then uh, you can't quite quite do that. But we had a, a team-building exercise uh, out there. There was no business discussed, but it was one end, uh, one extreme, you know. Oh, I did have one experience. It was the walkabout. 
There you go. So yeah. based on what my exposure was, Woody Zuil at the Agile Open SoCal during lunch would basically just um, start walking around their what do they call it, the Shire or something? You know, this big loop in the middle of campus, and people were happy to join him if they wanted to. But it wasn't, of course, you know, being an open space wasn't compulsory. Um, and generally, they would try to kind of pair up or go into dyads and triads and talk as long as they wanted to on a topic. And you could, just by walking a few paces, you know, faster or slower, to left or the right, join on a different discussion. Oh, wow. And that was pretty fluid. And so we, we used it at a place I was employed at. And I would get my didgeridoo and, you know, whatever hour it was. You know, it was usually in the afternoon. Like trying to kind of aim for like a... Um, a sugar-induced coma <laughs> time period. Yeah. People that wanted to kind of right. get right the blood after flowing, lunch or yeah. yeah. And some people would show up. We would go off into our triads and dyads and talk. And the thing that was cool was that we would avoid talking with people that we normally work with. Mm-hmm. So it's what I call fish bowling. Maybe fish bowling is a is a non-conventional. Um, so you talk. Kind of like I, I picture, you know, Geppetto speaking to his um, goldfish about, you know, what he's working on. Um, by explaining the problem, your mind is able to structure and solve the problem better, even though you're getting no real input or stimulus from the person you're explaining to. That mm. happens in the walkabouts. Mm. And I was talking with an architect once and a programmer another time, and as Ideas would come to me. I'd say, oh, I had a similar conversation with somebody else. You know, you might go talk to them. Mm-hmm. And that led to kind of water cooler conversations that were like more like arranged dating, I guess you could say. And it seemed to be a positive impact, but very loose structure or no structure at all. Okay, interesting. Well, when I uh, when I finish listening to this uh, this audio book on on my commute, I'll report back and let you guys know what some of the more interesting other additional techniques I pick up on. And what's the name of the book again? the The name of the book is yes. "Let's Stop Meeting Like This." Do you know the author? Ah, uh, let's see. When you do the walkabouts, John, have you? Mm-hmm. Um, have you time boxed it to like a, a rotation around the Shire or something? That's like that? right. Uh, yeah, we would say like two laps around the building. Okay, and that we had I had previously timed that to be like five minutes, so it wasn't wasn't meant to be long, and it was also intended to be like for your health to get oxygen to your brain. Those those three things. I was gonna say the the book is by Dick and Emily Axelrod. Nice. I wish I had a name like Axelrod. <laughs> so, all right you have a question for us use the hashtag ask agile coffee and we will be sure to get your question on the podcast that's a promise that's a resolution it's beyond a resolution it's a promise next card up we have is paired coaching and approximating truth john yeah so this is basically it's it's based on some reading that I was doing um, in a book called Quantum Psychology by Robert Anton Wilson. Mm-hmm. And many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity, I think it is, mm-hmm. which basically says that, you know, 
Um, when you're in the same inertial system, yeah, you know, things measure the same. Times, you know, clocks measure the same. Um, physical objects measure the same. But when you're in different inertial systems, meaning like, you know, maybe one person is accelerating at like half the speed of light and somebody else is stationary relative to that other person, all bets are off. Like, you know, clocks are telling time totally different and objects are measuring totally differently. And so, you know, this idea is in, in this book, Quantum Psychology, showing how people's definitions of things are different and interpretations are different. And they're basically the, the Aristotelian idea of absolute truth starts to unfold as false. And so since everything becomes relative, then the only way that you can find things that are workable is start you know, creating some sort of a convergence or a consensus on roughly what's true of the things that we see and interpret. And as I was agreeing with this in my mind as I was reading, I, I saw that that's an area where two coaches are better than one. Um, in, in the situation where you have a troubled team and the team isn't necessarily trying to converge or participate in some sort of continuous improvement effort, let's say. And so when you've got two coaches that are saying, well, I see, I see the situation as being A, and another coach saying, well, I see it as being more A prime. Okay, so how, how can we approximate the difference between our A and A prime take on this situation as something that's useful and workable to the team? And this, I would suppose, to most people is something that never occurs because to them, they have this Aristotelian view of Agile, mm -hmm. that like everything's absolute, and it's cut mm -hmm. and dried, and it's either Agile or not Agile. And, you know, either a process is part of, you know, the, the best practices of Agile or it's not. But the truth is that there is no truth. The truth is that Agile is a subjective thing mm -hmm. and that by leveraging the interpretations of two coaches to help a team start introducing, you know, incrementally practices that more closely resemble Agile, you're going to get more workability and greater value. John, you gave a, a talk recently, not too recently, a few months ago, um, to a number of colleagues where you mentioned um, leveraging the power of the crowd, the wisdom of the crowd. Right. And when people were, I think the exercise back turn of the century, like mm -hmm. 100 years ago, was um, estimating the weight of a, a steer, a steer yeah. you know, and people, the average guess, the average of guesses came to within a pound or two or something correct. like that of, of the guess, of the but, but no one, steer. definitely, no one no guessed one got it, it on the nose. Correct. And that's what you're getting to exactly. also is, is by approximating, you, you can approximate the truth by getting a larger sample size. True. And, and so two is certainly a larger sample size than one. Mm -hmm. So your approximation may or may not get any closer to the truth, but, well, you know. It, it probably but will. It, but it might, yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's the thing is most... Most Agile team members and most executives and managers that are hiring Agile coaches are probably not cognizant to the fact that 
there is a calibration happening behind the curtain mm. amongst the agile coaches to converge on a story so that they get their story straight amongst themselves when they speak to the the teams or the recipients of their coaching that you know this practice is agile this practice is not this is the best way to do it this is not so coaches don't naturally have one answer is is what i'm getting to and they actually use tools you know like text chat channels and they all ask each other okay here's my scenario what would you do what can we all align on not just for this client but for clients in the future and that sort of a negotiation and consensus develops real time so i think you know it's a good approach um and having a paired coach on site leverages the rich communication channels but you also get this wisdom of many crowds that you're alluding to vic and i would say that that's going to be many times more valuable than having a coach in a vacuum so we had talked in a previous podcast about having a coaches coaching crisis corner and we had said maybe at the upcoming Agile Coaches Camp, we might have, uh, you know, Brett was talking about building a confessional box, you know, where people oh, yeah, can come in right. and record yeah. that. Um, so we've got the, the forum set up on agilecoffee.com forums. Uh, you can find the Coaches Crisis Corner forum there. This is something that helps get us to a particular truth on any topic. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about a uh, an issue that we have, a crisis, a scenario at work that may not have a solution because there may not be one single solution mm-hmm. um and yet like with multiple coaches you can try to suss that out right you mm-hmm. can find um what are the the accepted or the the practices that you might want to try even um to to get to that, that yeah solution, right? and you know potentially at an event such as agile coach camp you could find some conspirators slash collaborators who oh, i'd hope so yeah maybe we get on to some sort of text chat and become a resource to each other on the fly in the future yeah that's what i'm looking forward to definitely i'll be pitching um a topic uh on paired coaching um there in the hopes Mm -hmm. that i find you know like-minded individuals i can keep in touch with whether they're local and i hadn't known that about them Mm -hmm. or or met them yet or or from afar it's uh, you know there's a there's a big potential for reciprocity you Mm -hmm. know i'll be there for for you if you'll be there for me kind of a thing yeah Great. So um, let us know. Keep in the conversation with us uh, using the hashtag tell Agile Coffee on Twitter or uh, by participating in our forums. That brings us to the end of today's episode. I did want to thank my esteemed colleagues for joining me again today. This is John Jorgensen. My pleasure. At Water Scrumbon on Twitter and Dale Ellis. Always enjoy it. Thank you for having me. The Digital Dale can be reached on Twitter as well. My name is Victor Bonacci. I am at Agile Coffee on Twitterville. Uh, Look out for um, upcoming announcements of changes to not only this podcast, we've got some music in the works, as well as uh, further announcements on the Agile Coach Camp US West that is coming up in April 10th through the 12th here in Irvine, California. More information online at agilegathering.com. It's been a pleasure having you, and until next time, please enjoy your coffee safely. (laughs) Coffee.